And uh, because what we did last week is we looked at um, really uh, all the reasons that we should not trust or have faith in the reliability of the New Testament. And uh, we looked at all kinds of things, how the text has been transmitted over time, and we looked at different types of errors that happen in the transmission of Scripture, and we looked at certain claims, and we looked at uh, all the differences that there are in the Bible, and uh, how can we possibly trust the Bible that it seems like we can't ever figure out what it said because there's so many variants, And that's kind of where I left you last week. And I said, we're going to answer some of those questions this week. And so I decided to do it a particular way. And and, and I'm going to do this in in a very simplified format so that you can take, my hope is that you can take some notes on what I have on the slides because it's a very small amount of information that I believe will be incredibly helpful to you in the future, not only for personal benefit, but in having conversations with people about the reliability of the New Testament in particular. Now, why are we talking about the reliability of the New Testament? Uh, did we talk about the reliability of the Old Testament? Well, here's the thing. You remember when we talked about the Old Testament and we looked forward into internal evidence in the New Testament itself that talked about the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament scriptures. Do you remember when we looked at that? When we have all the New Testament, many of the New Testament authors quoting from Old Testament scriptures and Jesus himself talking and expressing the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And as he mentioned, remember that uh, tripartite division of the Tanakh? And we talked about that. Jesus referencing the entirety of the Old Testament Uh, in the New Testament. Do you remember this conversation we had? So when we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament, what we're asking is, is, uh, are the documents that we have to support our New Testament reliable? And uh, can they accurately tell us with any sense of certainty that what the manuscripts say is what the autographs originally said? Because remember the autograph is the original document, and that's what we want to know. What did the original say, and does the history of the transmission of Scripture through scribes throughout the ages, does it preserve for us any kind of reliable New Testament documentation? I think that's a legitimate question to ask, don't you? In other words, we have our New Testament, and it it has a lot of information in it, and we base our faith and practice on what is written in our New Testament. And we want to know, is what is written in our New Testament reliable to the originals? Is, is what it says here what it originally said? And we need to ask that question. And so I'm going to give you a, a few things here, and, ev- and everything I'm going to say, I'm going I'm to pose in a question because you may be asked this question or you may say this to someone to start a conversation about this, okay? So here's the first question. We're talking tonight about the reliability of the New Testament. First question is this. How many New Testament, when you see NT from now on, that means New Testament, manuscripts are there? So, in nice round figures, 
we're going to say about 5,800 currently. That's gone up from 5,600 in the not too distant past. 5,800 plus Greek manuscripts and 1,800 plus non-Greek manuscripts. And you should know, or you might remember, about 10,000 of those 18,000 are in what language? Say it, Casey, go ahead. Latin. They're in Latin. And the reason for that is because of the Vulgate, right? Okay. That gives us a grand total of somewhere around 23,800. If you want to say 24,000, I think we're right in the ballpark there. So just remember as a figure to lock in your mind, how many New Testament manuscripts do we have? 24,000. How many of those are in Greek? About 5,800. And if you end up remembering 6,000, okay, you're in the ballpark. And that's really what we're looking for as far as we're concerned right now in this moment. Okay? Got that? That's easy one, right? Remember this because this is important and, and our questions are building off of one another from this point. How many of the New Testament manuscripts are the originals? The answer? Zero. None. Zip. Manuscripts are handwritten copies of exemplars. An exemplar is what you're basing your copy off of. Some of those exemplars would have been the originals, but we don't know which ones. If we did, then all the other manuscripts are meaningless, right? Um, but those originals are called the autographs. But if someone says to you, okay, you have 24,000 handwritten manuscripts, how many of those are the originals? And you can say confidently, well, zero. And they would say, and doesn't that bother you? And your answer should be, no. But why doesn't it bother you? Well, let's bring the question along a little bit, okay? Next. How many textual variants are there in the Greek New Testament manuscripts? More than 400,000. And you can say that confidently. But the person might say to you, and doesn't that bother you? This is any difference in manuscripts, by the way. This is any difference in manuscripts. How many variations are there? 400,000, more than 400,000. How many words are there in the Greek New Testament? About 138,000. And yet, there are over 400,000 variants. Any, any variation from manuscript to manuscript counts as a variant, okay? That works out to about three variants per word. You might say, well, does that bother you? No, but you might still wonder, but why doesn't that bother you? Why doesn't that bother you? You're, we're about to see. If you don't already know the answer, you're about to see. But the only reason we have textual variants, by the way, is because we have more than one handwritten copy. I thought about doing it, but we didn't have it for the, for, uh, for the sake of time. We didn't have the time, but I was going to put uh, like a paragraph of scripture and I was going to hand it out to this side and I was going to let whoever was here, so it would have been Craig, start and you would handwrite it and you would pass it to the next person and we would have a little textual 
transmission here. And so we would pass it from, and we'll, we'll see when it gets to Katie down there, uh, what our, we'll, t we'll take our original and we'll take Katie's and we'll compare them. There's going to be differences. But the thing is, um, this half of the room would have followed a particular uh, textual history and pattern, kind of like our text types, like a Western text type or, uh, you know, the Alexandrian text type, it, whereas this side of the room would have followed their own textual tra uh, uh, tradition, right? And there would have been a different textual uh, tradition following their pattern. And that's kind of how it was throughout the world. Okay, but anyway, the only reason that we have variants at all is because people are involved. Remember that this is before the copy machine. And if you're not copying something, Xeroxing it, and people are involved, you're going to have mistakes. And the really funny thing about this is that I was... Uh, I was, I was typing something earlier. I was, I was typing a quote, which you're going to see here soon. And I was having to look up at my uh, uh, screen over here, and then I was looking, I was looking down because I'm not a, 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 a great typer. And so I was looking at my keyboard, and I, and I looked down at something, and guess what I did? Made a mistake. Yep. What's that called when you look up, look down, make a mistake? Parablipsis. Yeah, David knew. Why didn't you know? We talked about it last week. You should know. Uh, anyway, but that happens, doesn't it? Uh, is that when people are involved and you make mistakes, it's because we're people and we make mistakes. So the only reason that we have variants at all is because, well, we have more than one copy and a person was involved. So understand, if we have more copies, what are we going to have more of? Variants. We have a lot of variants. What also do we have? A lot of copies we only had two copies, would we have that many variants? No. So actually, the presence of more variants, believe it or not, increases its reliability. Do you get that? Because we're not talking about 400,000 variants in two documents. We'll keep going. What are the most discussed textual variants in the Greek New Testament? Because you might say, okay, there are 400,000. Great. Just so you can get me in on the conversation, what are the most discussed textual variants in the Greek New Testament? Just so I have an idea what we're even talking about. We've talked about several already. But the three most discussed are going to be Mark 16, 9 through 20, longer ending of Mark. John 7, 753, 753 through 811 pericope adultery or the woman caught in adultery and then first john 5 7 and 8 johannine comma comma yoanaim however you want to say it and by the way that's really fancy because all it means is a short clause pertaining to john but fancy phrases is what you run into with all this kind of stuff i just because they can i guess i don't know but what are these three these three, uh, all three of them, in all likelihood, are not original to our manuscripts, but yet they appear in many Bible translations. Um, Mark 16, 9 through 20, um, as believed, is some people 
thought the original ending was lost because if you read it, it ends kind of abruptly. But in textual criticism, is a longer reading to be preferred or is a shorter reading to be preferred? Do you remember? Are people more prone to add or to take away? People are more prone to add. And why are they more prone to add? We talked about this last week where they wanted to give help. They thought they were helping. And sometimes they would even put these in the margins. They would write it to the side and say, hey, here's a story that I was told about Jesus and it seems like it fits right here. And maybe it originally ended up in the margin. But then a scribe later on thought, oh, he left that out and wrote it in the margin. He forgot to put it in the body of the text. So the next scribe put it in the body of the text rather than in the margin. But how do we know that it wasn't original? Well, there are several reasons. And you could, uh, if, if you look into these things, you're going to find uh, uh, several reasons why each of these are not included. Um, each of these three are not included. Um, uh, Peter Gurry offers uh, some good help on that. Um, uh, you probably don't necessarily want to look into this book, but it's called Myths and Mistakes in Textual Criticism. But anyway, I read it for you, so you don't have to. Um, but anyway, here's what he says. In the final analysis, that is in looking at all these variants, it's best to admit that in relatively rare cases, Variants really do have some bearing on some doctrines and ethical practices of the Christian faith. Now, understand what this is saying and understand what this is not saying. None of these, doc uh, none of these doctrines or ethical practices is established from these disputed texts. None of these doctrines or ethical practices is established from these disputed texts. We did not come up with that doctrine based on that text anyway nor are any of them in jeopardy because they are disputed texts. That is, it's the only text we have that says that, so if we lose that, we lose that doctrine. No, that's no. Absolutely not. So the fact that they're disputed texts, whether they, that is, whether they were original or not, we're not losing anything if they're not part of the text. We're not losing any of these doctrines. But uh, going back to John 7, 5, uh, 53 through eight eleven, the woman caught in adultery, that's the story I was saying most likely happened, but was not in the original text of John. Even John himself, remember, said, if all the stories that Jesus were contained, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. So there's a lot of things that Jesus did that never made it in Scripture. And John freely admits that, right? The Johannine comma, um, all of these, by the way, the earliest, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not contain those texts. But the majority does contain them. But we talked about earliest and majority and the difference between those two things, right? Because the majority is primarily later, whereas the early is the smaller group, but it's earlier, okay? Now, that's not a blanket statement. Not all the early ones don't have it. Not all the late ones do have it. But in all these situations, it appears evident that they are not. And there's about eight or nine reasons for each of these uh, anyway, but um, you can 
uh, ask me if you want, and I can point you towards some information that will help you with these three in particular. Uh, but a big thing about First John 5, 7 through 8 is if you have a KJV, it's in there. Um, there are three that testify. You, you, you know the, the passage that we're talking about? Um, and it's funny that Jerome initially, I, I said Jerome here, but Jerome isn't correct. It's Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus in initially left him out of his Greek New Testament. The, these verses here in John, 1 John 5, 7, and 8 because he couldn't find any Greek uh, manuscripts that contained them. And uh, so the council was mad at him. And he said, if you can produce for me one manuscript, one Greek manuscript that contains 1 John 5, 7, and 8, then I will add it in my Greek New Testament. And wouldn't you know it, they produced one. You know how that happened, right? I mean, they literally produced it. And they said, here you go, here it is. But he added it, which means it ended up in the Textus Receptus, which means it ended up where? In the King James Version of the Bible. So many KJV-only advocates say you're taking the Trinity out of the Bible. Now, if we take just that those two verses alone out of the Bible, are we taking the Trinity out of the Bible? In no way whatsoever are we taking the Trinity out of the Bible. Okay. Um, any, anyway, there's, there, there could be more that's said, but I have, I have more to get to here. That's, that's, uh, uh, we, we still need to go upward with this, okay? This is about the reliability of the New Testament. Okay, next. Uh, what types of variants are there in the Greek New Testament manuscripts? This is the most important thing that we need to discuss about textual variants. How many are there roughly in the Greek New Testament? 400,000. But we talked about the three big ones. But altogether, these 400,000, are they all big like that? Well, those are the only big ones, really. I mean, there are some other small ones. But we're about to talk about all these 400,000 variants and their significance. There are really uh, two different ways of understanding a variant. It can be meaningful, meaning it, it changes the meaning. So if one says this and one says that, they actually mean two different things. That's a meaningful variant. A viable variant means that it was most likely part of the original manuscript. Okay? What happens if something is meaningful but not viable? I'm not sure I understand. Okay, Siri doesn't know. <laughs> Siri doesn't know everything. Meaningful, but not viable. Go back to that next slide, or that, the previous slide there. We'll go in order. Okay, so viable, but not meaningful. Viable, but not meaningful. This accounts for 70% of that 400,000. Viable, but not meaningful, meaning 
yeah, it, it's, it's possible that these were part of the original. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And you might say, but there's differences. How could it not matter? Because it doesn't change the meaning of the words. But you might say, but if there are different words, how does it not change the meaning of the words? What about if something is spelled wrong? Does that change the meaning? Are you real concerned about that? What about in the Greek, a lot of times names are preceded by a definite article. You might say the Eric, okay? What if it just said Eric instead of the Eric? Are you real concerned about that? Or the most common variant in all of the New Testament manuscripts has to do with the, what's called a movable new. And uh, it's kind of like we say uh, A or an, like A apple or an apple. Are you real concerned if it says A instead of an or an instead of A? Are you concerned in a biblical manuscript and you say, well, that's, not, that's not trustworthy. It said, it's an apple. And you crinkle it up and you throw it in the trash. Uh, would you do that? Or would you say, okay, you know what? It's still a viable manuscript, but that it doesn't change the meaning of anything. You understand what that means? This type of thing accounts for 280,000 of the 400 variants. So do you already see how we have drastically cut this number already? None of those m variants mean anything. They may have been original, but they don't matter. Okay, next. What about if something is meaningful but not viable? That is, it really changes. Like this manuscript says Daniel went to church, and this one says Daniel did, did not go to church. Or better, it would be Daniel did go to church, Daniel did not go to church. Do you see how there's a variant there? One's missing a word or one's added a word and it really changes the meaning. That's meaningful. That totally changes the whole thing. The thing is though that it's not viable is that according to textual studies and comparison and looking at the earliest manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts, they were definitely not part of the original. And so you say, yeah, that... That does change things, certainly. But we're okay with that because there's no way that was part of the original. That's another 29%. And if you're following percentages, how many percent do we have left? 1%. We have just done away with 99%. 99% of the textual variants found in our manuscripts 99% of the textual variants in the Greek New Testament are either not meaningful or not viable. That is something you need to write down. That is something that you need to remember. 99% of the textual variants in the Greek New Testament are either not meaningful or not viable. And someone might say to you, well, what does meaningful and viable mean? So I suppose you better be prepared to answer that question as well. Meaningful means it, it, me, it means something different Viable means it, it, it is, has a possibility of being in the original, um, that it's a viable manuscript, has a good textual history, 
it, 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 um, not viable means it doesn't have a good textual history. It's not part of the original. We can tell that by comparing manuscripts. Okay? There's only one manuscript that says that, and it was from, you know, 900. We have 20 other ones that don't include it, and they're from the year 200. Do you get how that manuscript is not viable? Okay. 29%. Um, some of these might include things such as all that scribal activity we talked about last week. Remember how they were real concerned about harmonization? Harmonizing things, but we can tell they harmonized? Remember we talked about Jesus on the cross and it had the three, uh, three languages of what's written on the cross? And remember we had a variant that added in to harmonize with the other gospel? Okay, that's the kind of thing we're talking about right here where it's clear that all they were doing was harmonizing with another gospel account. Right? So we know that that wasn't original, um, so it's not viable. But it, it is meaningful, but it's not viable. Okay? Um, some of these also include things like when it says he a lot, and he did this, and he did that, and he did this, and he did that, and it goes on for like three pages about that. And so eventually a scribe said, I better help the reader understand who he is. And so he put Jesus. So a lot of times we're going to see he and a scribe added Jesus to help us understand that it's Jesus that the he is referencing. Get how we're, we're not too concerned about this? These types of variants compose 99% of the variants in our Greek New Testament. What about that 1%? This 1% meaningful and viable. That is, it really changes the text and it has a good possibility that it's a good manuscript. What do we do about that? 1%. How many would that be? About 4,000. Right? 400,000. Okay. The reality here is that we've been talking in round, nice, perfect round numbers, which is helpful for memorization. The reality is, is that we're really closer to the 2,000 range. It's less than 1%. The real number is less than 1%. So we're really about, some would say, between 1,500 to 2,000 meaningful and viable variants in our Greek New Testament. But you notice I have... Uh, like a whittling down of numbers here. It goes from 1,500 to 2,000 down to 1,408 down to 373. Do you see that? Why did I do that? Well, there are really three common critical editions of our Greek New Testament. What does it mean that it's a critical edition? What does it mean that it's a critical edition of the Greek New Testament? That is important, but it's not what it means. Do you remember? A critical edition of the Greek New Testament means they have taken all of the known Greek manuscripts and compared them and done critical uh, textual studies on all of them to compare them to find the best reading. Okay? Um, 
so they've taken all the, so a critical edition grows as we find new manuscripts. So there's uh, uh, one, one set called the Nestle Alland, and it's in its 28th edition, which means that it originally had its first edition. But now that it's in its 28th edition, more Greek manuscripts have been found, not even just Greek, but New Testament manuscripts have been found to help them better understand what did the original say, okay? So the Nestle Alland is in its 28th edition. So it will soon, as more manuscripts are found and they do study on it, um, a 29th edition will come about. That's a critical edition. There's another one called the UBS, United Bible Societies, and they're in their fourth edition. They're a little bit slower. Um, but honestly, it, it, it appears to be that they do a little bit more work for us up front. Because what the United Bible Society did was they uh, looked at all the variants and they said, really, we can whittle it down to a particular number of meaningful variants that we need to be really thinking about. And guess what that number is? 1,408. And then of those 1,408, 502 of them, they say, even then, though, we're certain we know what the original reading was. 533 of them were almost certain. That's over 1,000 gone. What are we left with? 373. 373. Here's a quote here. James White is helpful here, breaks it down into one sentence. This is good. We have 1,500 to 2,000 meaningful and viable variants over 2 million pages of handwritten text over a period of 1,500 years. What would you call something like that? Huh? Would you, well, how would you describe that? Miraculous? I would. I would describe that as miraculous. That over a 1,500 year period of over 2 million pages of handwritten text, 1,500 to 2,000 meaningful differences in those texts when so many people were involved. Here's another one from Bill Mounts. He says, there is not a single viable variant that calls into question any point of biblical theology, major or minor. So of those 1,500 to 2,000, who's, who's Bill Mounts? Was that the question? Oh, he wrote the Greek grammar that I'm very familiar with. Um, that's, that was the, my Greek textbook was William Mounts. Um, and uh, he actually just published a book. It's funny, I didn't know about it until uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Why I Can Trust the Bible. And he goes into some of this information. So be a, he goes into some theology, uh, theological aspects of it and then some of what we're talking about too. Good book if you're looking for something. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave that. It, okay, go ahead and put that next one up. Okay, so question here. Can we trust the Bible? Let's hear what Bart Ehrman has to say. Bart Ehrman says, what good is it to say that the autographs are inspired 
We don't have the original autographs. So what good is it to say the originals are inspired when you don't have them? He included the exclamation mark, not me. Bart Ehrman is an apostate. He uh, formerly claimed to be evangelical Christian. Like I said, went to Moody Bible Institute, then went to Wheaton. Then studied Greek under Bruce Metzger. And decided after all his study of all the same information that we've covered, he concluded the next quote I have for you. In some places, as we will see, we simply cannot be sure that we have reconstructed the original text accurately. And he has a big problem with this. And go on to the next one. The passages discussed above represent just two of thousands of places in which the manuscripts of the New Testament came to be changed by scribes. So you can see he's just thrown his hands up in the air. Can't you see that there are so many differences in our New Testament manuscripts that you can never know what the original said, but you say it's only inspired in the originals. You don't know what it said. You'll never know what it said. It's been changed so much throughout the years. No one can know what it says. It's foolish. It's false. It's not true. Christianity is not true. Because the God that it talks about would have been capable of preserving a text, and he clearly was not. This is Bart Ehrman's argument. Can we trust the Bible? Bart Ehrman says no. Absolutely not. Nothing it says is true. Do you trust the Bible? After all the information that you've been given, you've been given all reasons to believe to not trust the Bible. Do you trust the Bible? Do you, are you, do you feel informed about the reason you trust the Bible? I'm about to give you another piece of paper here that I have. Daniel, would you mind to help me pass this out? I, don't, I probably don't have enough copies for everybody, but do what you can there. I'm going to give you one more piece of information, and the best way I thought to give this to you was for you to actually have it. Um, I'll wait to talk about it until you get it. By the way, let me tell you this about Bart Ehrman. The passages discussed above represent just two of thousands of places. Guess what two he referenced? The two major ones where there are entire paragraphs. He said that's only two of thousands of those. Are there thousands of places like those? No. This is a lie. This is a blatant lie from a man who knows better. He knows that there are not thousands of places like the two he just referenced. If there were, he would have listed them. This is a lie. From his book, Misquoting Jesus, I did not misquote Bart Ehrman, but he believes that the scribes misquoted Jesus. Therefore, we have no idea what he said. So what he's trying to do here is to try to get you to see something that's not actually there. He's trying to get you to not trust the Bible with false information. This is not true. Are there thousands of variants? Are they like those two? No. 
Absolutely not. But you think, there are entire portions of my Bible missing and there are thousands of places like that? Now that would start to make you question your Bible, wouldn't it? If it were true. It's not true. It's not true. He says, there are more variants in your Greek New Testament than there are words in your Greek New Testament. True or false? True. But then he says, and they're all just like that. All of them completely change the text. He knows that that's not true. But you don't sell books by telling the truth. Okay. So I believe I have that image to go on the screen, okay? So what you're looking at is a great graphic. I wanted you to have this to be able to take it home at, or fold it up, put it in your Bible, but let me explain to you what you're looking at. To the left, which it looks like a solar system diagram, I know. To the left, there is a giant circle, um, and then to the right are several other little circles. The distance from the center dot out represents how near the earliest surviving copies of the original works are. So for example, if, if I wrote a document today and it, you had the original, it would be right on the center dot. If, it were t if, if, if there were a copy that came 10 years after my original, it would be a little ways away from the dot. If, it came, if, the, if the earliest one you have is a thousand years after the original, it's going to be out here, away from the center dot. Does it make sense as you're looking at it? Okay, the chart there explains. These are all works of classical and ancient literature that are taught in universities. How many existing copies are there of Homer in the Iliad? About 643 is what it says. How many years transpired between the original and the earliest surviving copy of Homer in the Iliad? 500 years. The reason Homer's Iliad is listed there is because this is the best that it gets. In all of classic, classical and ancient literature, that's the best that it gets except for one, and guess what that is? The size of the yellow dot to your right represents how many manuscripts there are. The size of the dot to the left represents how many manuscripts there are of our New Testament. Do you see how much our New Testament blows those things out of the water? And look at how close it is to the center dot, much closer than anything we have in classical literature. I can explain it again. The giant dot to your left that looks like the sun represents the vast number of New Testament manuscripts. Whereas the little dots, you see how little bit of manuscripts we have for those works. Not only that, they're far from the center dot, meaning that the earliest surviving copies are nowhere near their originals. But with the Greek New Testament, 
look at how near it is to the originals and look at how many we have. Does that make sense? So you have a list here of all these classical works. You can see that by saying 24,000, of course, that's including what manuscripts? Greek and non-Greek. Now, if we were to say just Greek, that number would go to 5,800. Okay, now we only have 5,800. Are, are we concerned about that Com comparatively to the rest of classical works? I don't think we're too concerned about that, are we? No, I don't think so. Um, do you think that Plato's works has more or less variance than our Bible manuscripts? Find Plato on your list. Do you think that there are more variants or less variants in Plato's works? Why? Because there are less manuscripts. We have s almost 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Yeah, there are a lot of variants. About 400,000 plus. Some say 500,000. We don't know. I mean... How are you going to compare them all? Unless you digitize them. That takes some work, doesn't it? Which a lot of them are. There's actually something. Uh, do you know about CBGM? Um, there is something in the works right now. Uh, Coherence-based uh, CBG. Genealogi genealogical methodology. Coherence-based genealogical methodology. CBGM. Meaning they're taking all of these manuscripts and they're saying, computers are saying, where, I'll just give you an example. Um, some are saying the longer ending of Mark, the Greek changes, that it's not written like him anymore. The computer would be able to pick up on that by words and phrases used by him. In fact, Mark has already been completed in the CBGM database. And guess what? The longer ending of Mark found no coherence to the rest of his book. Pretty interesting stuff, right? But anyway, that's all happening through computers now, even though it's a slow process. Okay. Why did we start talking about that? Because I was talking about Plato. Yeah, the two things don't go together, do they? Next, we'll go back to the question, and can we trust the Bible? There is a very simple answer to that, and the answer is yes. You have just been given, um, Dan Wallace, I was listening to Dan Wallace. Dan, Dan Wallace teaches uh, uh, Greek at Dallas, and evidently David knows him. Uh, so anyway, we were talking about him, and they uh, went through school, seminary together. But um, uh, he has written a lot on the reliability of the New Testament and uh, has done some fantastic work. Um, but he said the wealth of information we have to prove the reliability of the New Testament is embarrassing. It's way too much. We have way too much information to prove the reliability of our New Testament text. And so when you approach it and you open to your English New Testament, which is based on a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, you can say, the words here that I'm reading that have been translated, I can say with certainty that what I'm reading here, I know that in doctrine and practice and in, in, in the words that I'm reading, I, I have the very words of Scripture as it was written. I'm not too concerned about how you spell John's name originally. 
right? Uh, and I know that even if there is a question and I read a footnote in my, in my ESV and it says some manuscripts don't contain this. Okay, but some do. And the ESV decided that so many manuscripts contain it, so many good manuscripts contain it, that it appears evident to us that it was part of the original, so we included it. But if they did not include it, the editors believed without, uh, for various reasons, that that was not part of the original. So they don't include, for example, the longer ending of Mark, or they put it in brackets to let you know. There's a question about this, but aren't you thankful for an English uh, Bible company who at least lets you know? I'm just letting you know some versions say this here. And you say, okay. Is it a meaningful, viable variant? Does it really change the fact of what some manuscripts say Jesus Christ instead of Jesus? That one happens a lot, actually. Um, You say, okay. I'm not too concerned about that because it doesn't change the meaning at all. Are you all following me on these kind of variants and what we're looking at and the, the reliability of our New Testament and how it has proved to us over and over? And even when you're looking at it from a strictly secular academic standpoint and you're saying, is it reliable? Without a shadow of a doubt, our New Testament is a reliable text that we can look back to and have confidence in in what it's saying to us was in the original. Okay? Yes, I knew there'd be questions. Go ahead. Yeah, it's definitely false. And a a lie people tell themselves that they're not a person of faith. Everybody is a person of faith. Every single person on the planet is a person of faith. They have faith in something. Um, Because it, I mean, take evolution for example. You're having faith in something that cannot be recreated. Faith in something that you've never seen, that no one has ever seen, but you believe that it's there. You have faith in it. You're a person of faith. Absolutely. Any other questions about any of this? Tell me, did this information help you to be uh, a little bit more grounded and, and have a firmer grasp and confidence in the reliability of your Bible? What we just covered tonight has been covered in uh, thousands and thousands of pages of many, many books. So if you're thinking, well, that seemed awfully uh, simple there. Yeah. This is gleanings. Gleanings of nuggets of the things that I found to be very important. And also things that we can take with us. Some of these things are just very basic that we can take with us. And very simple facts to memorize. How many variants in the New Testament? 400,000. Are you concerned about that? No, I'm not. Why? Because we have so many manuscripts, that's why we have so many variants. Do you know how many of those variants are both meaningful and viable? 1%. And do you know about that 1%? What? And all of a sudden, you're given information that they had no idea about. 
So this has apologetic value to it, right? When you're having conversations with people and you say, yeah, but you ever read from Bart Ehrman? Let me tell you something about Bart Ehrman. Right? Um, we have information here and also it's protecting you from some of these onslaughts because I, I, I'll share with you one, one, one little personal story here as we're ending, okay? As I began studying these things, um, I uh, had, a, had a moment where I was a little upset. Upset at the fact that I went for five years at Voice College, two years at the Moody Bible Institute, went through my whole Master of Divinity, all in Bible. This information never came up. And I had a moment where I thought, because talk about hermeneutical principles, what you do with the text. You have the text, now what do you do with it? How do you understand it? But it never went outside of it and said, how did you get it? This is the Greek that it was written in. Here's your Greek New Testament. What are all these numbers and stuff at the bottom? Don't worry about that. Let's just try to read it. But it was never explained to me that there were issues of textual criticism. And one of the first people I ever heard talk about it was Bart Ehrman. Guess who else was mad that he had never heard these things? Bart Ehrman. And he said, why has no one ever told me about these things? And so I felt, in a sense, like I was one of my children. Only tell them what they need to know. No sense in telling them that's, you know, stuff they don't need to know, you know. There's, whatever, there's a a a tornado nearby. Let's let's go in the, we don't need to scare them though, right? And that's how I felt from the academic world. Don't scare them. Don't, they they don't need to know that. Just tell them what to do with the Bible after they have it in their hands. Uh, But you know, there's a reason for that. And I I believe the reason that the academic world, at least in my circles of the academic world, uh, were not upfront about these things is because the world at large wasn't concerned with these things. And the average person didn't even know to question it. But now the average world does know and they are questioning it. And how are they doing that? By means of media, by means of the internet. YouTube videos. Anybody can say anything they want about anything they want and they have millions of listeners. So now all of a sudden, people who are unprepared for this are getting a friend is sharing a YouTube video about the reliability of the New Testament from Bart Ehrman. And they're saying, see, I always thought there was something funny about the Bible. And that's how it goes. 
So now all of a sudden we live, even though we once did not, we live in a world that is very much questioning the reliability of the Bible we hold in our hands. And so I now believe, at least in part, somewhat, even in a simplified way, we have some of the information so that when this is thrown in our face, we can at least have a conversation with these people. And it's not only for their benefit, but you know it's for yours too because all of a sudden when they start throwing out information at you, it doesn't cut you to the heart and all of a sudden start questioning your faith. Are these things true? Is what you're saying true? We don't really know what the Bible said and they give you information. They show you manuscripts. Look, you don't, we don't even know what it said. But just like Bart Ehrman, he's training people to give you cited information and to blow out of proportion the things that are not actually there. Things are blown out of proportion. So anyway, I end on that by saying, I do not want any of you to feel that way. Do I think he is actually Satan himself? Well, uh, any disbelief is satanic. So uh, he is of his father, the devil. You know, just as anybody is captive to do his will who's not a believer. So yes. Um, but anyway, it, it's, it's definitely a tool for getting people who are not of genuine faith to disbelieve or for people who are of faith to be on shaky ground and question things. Right? Um, that is absolutely what ha- there is an attack. And there's an attack on the word. So um, with that being said, I'm going to wrap up tonight and uh, we'll have some further conversation on this another time. But I hope that this has been beneficial to you. And uh, still, if you have any questions that I have not answered um, that have been left lingering, okay, uh, I want to know what those questions are. And uh, I'll do whatever I can to uh, help with that, okay? So let's pray and we'll be through with tonight. Lord, thank you so much for our time together and for all the time that we've spent talking about your word and uh, where it came from. And we, can sa- we know that it's your word and that's a matter of faith. That's a, that's a theological issue to understand that this is the very word of God. How do you, you are the one that opens our eyes and our hearts, our ears to, to see it, to hear it, to believe it, to trust in it. You're the one that does that work in us. But sometimes the world can throw information at us that makes it hard to believe and we question what we've actually had faith in. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us from that. And I pray that you would give us confidence. Looking at all these things that we've looked at over these past seven weeks, I pray that you would... Uh, Help us to retain what is necessary, uh, that you would strengthen our faith, strength, strengthen our trust in your word. But we don't want to simply just have some kind of blind faith in, in, in a Bible that's ended up in our lap, but we want to know because all truth is, is truth that is yours. Truth is good. Truth is a good thing. What has happened to the scriptures over time is a good thing. And we need to understand it through a lens of a sovereign God who is preserving his word and delivering it to us, to your people, that we might know you, that we might believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray that you would continue to help this church um, have more and more faith in your word, um, that we would seek it, that we would love it, that we would understand the great treasure that it is to us. 
We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.